quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. An incremental gain for Ukraine, but that's not stopping Russia. The lead starts right now. CNN on the front lines where Ukraine's fight for freedom is in the trenches. The U.S. CIA director was there before a critical meeting of NATO allies. Why he thinks instability in Moscow is creating a unique moment. Then a holiday block party in Baltimore turns tragic. Now the hunt for shooters who open fire, killing two, injuring nearly 30 others, including teens. The mayor's urgent plea for lawmakers nationwide to do more. Plus, can cows help curb the climate crisis? You might have heard their possible gas problems, but this time, cattle may be eating their way to a solution. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Abby Phillip. And for Jake Tapper, we start with our world lead. Multiple Russian attack drones hit apartment buildings and an administrative center in Ukraine's northeastern city of Sumy. And so far, officials say two people were killed and 19 were hurt, including a five-year-old. As Ukraine presses on with its slow but steady counteroffensive, Ukraine's deputy defense minister claims that they've clawed back around 14 square miles of territory from Russia in the last week. Meanwhile, in an exclusive interview with CNN, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky slammed Russian leader Vladimir Putin, insisting he's, quote, weak after the short-lived mutiny by the private Wagner army last week. We'll show you more of that interview in just a few moments, but first, we'll bring you close to the front lines where CNN's Ben Wiedemann is in the eastern part of the country. So, Ben, can you put those 14 square miles that Ukraine claims that it gained into some perspective here? Yeah, 14 square miles. It's divided between the area around Bakhmut, where about a third of those 14 miles were taken, and the other is south in the Zaporizhia region. That's a pretty modest gain for an entire uh, week of fighting. But you have to keep in mind that the Russians were prepared for this counteroffensive. We've been talking about it. The Ukrainians have been talking about it. Observers and analysts have been talking about it for months. And today we heard from the spokesman for Ukrainian forces in eastern Ukraine speaking on national TV that according to him, the Russians have deployed along the eastern front 180,000 troops. That's more than twice the size of the entire British army. And around Bakhmut alone, in the city and around it, 50,000 troops. And they've been moving up armor and lots of ammunition. And, you know, we've been speaking even to Russian prisoners of war. It's somewhat confusing because their account, and many of them are convicts and whatnot, uh, they, they say that morale is poor, supplies are poor, there isn't much food, uh, they don't have a lot of medicine, their commanders are incompetent. But it appears that the Russians have thrown so many people into this fight that perhaps 
quantity is overcoming quality. Now it's early days. This is we're now into the fourth week of this offensive. The Ukrainians still really haven't thrown the bulk of their forces uh, into the fight. Uh, they will tell you they're still probing to find those weak points uh, in the front line. So it's early days, but certainly so far the going has been difficult for the Ukrainians. Abby? And Ben, today we also learned that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the biggest of its kind in Europe, has been reconnected to backup power, but it's still, quote, extremely fragile, according to the International Atomic Agency's director. So what is the latest on control of that facility? Well, it remains under Russian control. The the facility, the nuclear power plant, the biggest in Europe, is in shutdown mode, but it's important to keep the reactors cool and the water in the reactors cool. But according to the head of Ukrainian intelligence, who last week he said that the Russians had mined the cooling pools to the reactors and also had deployed explosive filled trucks outside four of the six reactors at the plant. In addition to that, there's this puzzling news that the Russians are actually pulling, it appears, technical staff out of the power plant and sending them elsewhere. And at the same time, they have planted mines around the the grounds of the nuclear power plant as well. So it's good news that this backup power line has been installed at the nuclear power plant. But there's a lot to worry beside that, Abby. Yeah, a continuous worry for the entire planet, frankly. Ben Wiedemann in eastern Ukraine, thank you very much. And meanwhile, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says that the Wagner Rebellion shows that Putin's power is, quote, crumbling. And when asked by CNN's Aaron Burnett about negotiating an end to Russia's terror campaign on his country, Zelensky reiterated that there is no victory in Ukraine without Crimea, which was annexed by Russia nearly 10 years ago. Listen. We cannot imagine Ukraine without Crimea. And while Crimea is under the Russian occupation, it means only one thing. War is not over yet. To be clear, in victory, in peace, is there any scenario where Crimea is not part of Ukraine? It will not be victory then. I know the U.S. CIA chief Bill Burns has come and visited you regularly. He was here recently. What did you tell him about your plans to take back territory in the counteroffensive? To be honest with you, I was surprised to see the information in some media, both in the U.S. and Ukrainian and European media. My communication with the CIA chief should always be behind the scenes, and the media attention because we discuss important things, what Ukraine needs and how Ukraine is prepared to act. We don't have any secrets from CIA because we have good relations and our intelligence services talk with each other. I don't know what were other contacts. I don't really remember which media I read it in. The situation is pretty straightforward. We have good relations with the CIA chief, and we are talking. I told him about all the important things related to the battlefield, which we need. Let's bring in CNN's Kylie Atwood over at the State Department. So, Kylie, a very notable dodge there on the thrust of Aaron's question. But what do we know about this visit that the CIA chief Bill Burns made to Ukraine recently? 
Well, listen, what we know is that obviously he met with President Zelensky himself. He met with his Ukrainian intelligence counterparts. And according to a U.S. official, the thrust of his message was that the United States will continue sharing intelligence with the Ukrainians as it continues to face this Russian aggression, as this war drags on. Now, he didn't answer Aaron's question as to exactly what he discussed with Bill Burns. But according to The Washington Post, one of the things that the Ukrainian officials laid out for Bill Burns while he was there was their plans, their strategy to retake the territories that have been occupied and taken by the Russians and also their plans to enter into negotiations, ceasefire negotiations with the Russians by the end of the year. Now that is significant. That means they're looking at this year as a year that could potentially start conversations that would end this war. And we should note, however, the timing surrounding this visit, Abby. It happened before Wagner Chief Yevgeny Pergozhin's attempted insurrection. And according to a U.S. official, that attempted insurrection was not a part of their conversation. But we do know that U.S. intelligence did have some indication that that was coming in advance of it actually happening. And Kylie, also over the weekend, uh, Director Burns said that, you know, disaffection with Putin's war in Ukraine has created a, quote, once in a generation generation opportunity for the CIA to recruit Russians. Have recruitment drives like this been successful in the past? Well, yeah. I mean, what he said is that the CIA is ultimately a human intelligence service. So what that means is that it relies on the human instinct and human desire to share information. And when they are disaffected with leadership in their country, clearly the CIA has seen in the past that there is a willingness to share information. Now, Bill Burns, uh, earlier this year, the CIA rolled out a recruitment video uh, that they actually shared in the region in Russia, trying to encourage Russians and not just Russians in the intelligence space, but also Russians who work for businesses or Russians who work in the tech space to share information with the CIA. They rolled out uh, some pretty uh, clear details, sharing with them how to actually do that. So it's clear that the CIA has seen this as an opportunity to recruit folks who can share information with them for a while now. And Bill Burns was very clear, as you said, in calling this a once in a lifetime opportunity. Abby. Very interesting stuff there. Kylie Atwood, thank you very much over at the State Department. I want to now bring in the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Congressman Jim Himes. Congressman, thanks for joining us. I want to go back to what you heard Ukraine's president tell Aaron Burnett just moments ago, that the war will not end unless Ukraine retakes Crimea. Do you think that that is a likely outcome? Um, It's really hard to say, Abby. Um, I'm not sure that uh, a week ago any of us would have predicted a coup attempt against um, against Vladimir Putin. So um, really hard to predict. Um, Now, uh, what is true and the reason the president is saying that is that uh, Crimea is Ukrainian territory. So frankly, it would have been more newsworthy had he said, yeah, no problem. The Russians can keep it. But, um, uh, you know, uh, given what's happening inside Russia and given the gains that the Ukrainians are making, slow though may, they may be, uh, President Zelensky's hand is strengthened. And I would expect him to say precisely what he did, which is this is not over till we've gotten every square inch of land back. That being said, uh, retired General Wesley Clark, someone who knows quite a lot about the, the art of war here, told CNN today that Ukraine probably doesn't have the military power to retake Crimea. So if the United States, he says, provides them with perhaps long range tactical missiles like the Attackums and F-16 fighter jets. Uh, do you think that that could change the, the course of the war in Ukraine's favor? 
Well, again, um, you know, I would uh, probably not quarrel with General Clark on these issues, but um, the Ukrainians have been surprising the world uh, for the last year and a half in terms of their ability to do things that nobody predicted that they could do. And of course, um, you know, this isn't purely about gun on gun, tank on tank, missile on missile. It's also about what happens inside the Russian state. Um, imagine what it must be like right now uh, to be a Russian conscript uh, on the front. You just had this, uh, by, by their measures, heroic uh, guy, Prigozhin, uh, Wagner, you know, which was obviously well-respected and supported within Russia, witness his ability to get, get you know, tens of thousands of men to Rostov without uh, any uh, resistance. Uh, if you're that conscript sitting in eastern Ukraine, you're saying to yourself, I have no idea what's happening at home. Uh, Prigozhin, who uh, I may or may not respect, um, is telling me that this war was um, uh, badly conceived, um, strategically a catastrophe. Um, my point here is, of course, that uh, this is as much about the staying power of the Russian military, the morale of the Russian military, the staying power, quite frankly, of Vladimir Putin, as it is about exactly how many tanks and attackums the Ukrainians have. Uh, but on the, the question of what the United States should provide, there is a question now. They are deliberating about providing uh, cluster munitions to Ukraine. Do you think that those should be provided on the battlefield right now? So, my, um, from moment one, my view has been, let's give the Ukrainians what they want and need. And, uh, you know, frankly, I wish that the United States and that the administration had moved faster on providing um, more weaponry. Uh, we finally got around to aircraft. We finally got around to longer range missiles, uh, uh, Patriots, etc. Um, but there's something untenable about being comfortable in North America while thousands of Ukrainians are dying every single uh, week. And we're saying, uh, yeah, we're not quite sure you need what you say you need. So uh, I think we should give the Ukrainians what it is that they are asking for. We shouldn't second guess them. And I think that compared to a year ago, um, the notion that uh, Vladimir Putin, that our fear that escalation may be responded to by Vladimir Putin, uh, by more escalation, first of all, he's lost the ability to escalate because he's lost so much of his military. Secondly, uh, I think the Chinese have been very, very clear with Vladimir Putin what happens in the event that he uses a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, and so I, again, continue to feel that we should provide the Ukrainians with what it is that they think they need. So, so yes to the cluster munitions, just to be clear. Yes. Yeah. Again, if they have asked for it, they need longer range missiles. I, I uh, uh, you know, they need more uh, ability to control the battlefield from the air. We should be giving it to them. All right. Congressman Jim Himes, thank you very much for all of that. Thank you, Abby. And here in the United States, new details on that tragic mass shooting in Baltimore. Two killed, 28 others, mostly teens, injured and fears of retaliation. And the new video from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis that has his 2024 rivals questioning his campaign tactics and calling him out. Plus, the deadly result of what is now Israel's largest military operation in the West Bank in some 20 years. And topping our national lead, police are searching for at least two suspects involved in Sunday's mass shooting in Baltimore, Maryland, that left two people dead and 28 others injured. More than half of the injured are children between the ages of 13 and 17. CNN's Danny Freeman reports on the chaotic violence that suddenly unfolded during a festive neighborhood block party. A holiday weekend block party turned chaotic and deadly in an instant. 
Surveillance video taken early Sunday morning captured people running for their lives as gunfire broke out in Baltimore's Brooklyn neighborhood. We won't stop until we find those responsible and hold them accountable. We won't. 28 people were injured, including 15 children under the age of 18. 18-year-old Alia Gonzalez and 20-year-old Kailis Fogbemi were killed in the shooting. You know, it was frightening, and whew, that's went straight into prayer, you know, protection for this community. Police say the crime scene stretches multiple blocks, and at this point they have not made an arrest, but believe there were multiple shooters. We are still looking at every casing. We have multiple casings from one uh, caliber of weapon, but that doesn't mean every one came from that same weapon. Police also fear this shooting could lead to even more gun violence. We're always concerned about retaliation in every single incident. And today, Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott called for stronger gun laws. This is not just a Baltimore thing. We have to be honest. This is the United States of America. This is our longest standing public health challenge, and we need to focus on gun violence regardless of where it happens. Now, Abby, at this point, there is a $28,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest and charges in this case. And the city said they're really relying on tips from the public to help crack this one. But also remember, the holiday weekend still is not over yet. And the city really was working hard in the press conference today to emphasize to the public for the big Baltimore Fourth of July events that are still to come. Those will be safe spaces and they're sparing no expense when it comes to resources to make the public feel safe. Abby. All right, Danny Freeman in Baltimore, thank you very much. And ahead for us, the campaign video that has the political world talking, that LGBTQ ad from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the possible intended strategy as critics call him out. And in our politics lead, here's one way to mark the end of Pride Month. A campaign Twitter account for Ron DeSantis' 2024 presidential bid shared a video that touts his own anti-trans record and slams Donald Trump's previous promise to protect LGBTQ rights. It features a clip from Trump's acceptance speech in the 2016 Republican convention just after a gunman killed 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now. So, Jeff, in addition to that video being just kind of terrible um, on on its face. I wonder what uh, is the point uh, from a political perspective? It seems like the reaction has been pretty strong, even among Republicans, against this video. Look, I think the point is to draw attention. The point for Governor Ron DeSantis is to uh, perhaps change the conversation away from his uh, really uh, difficult summer, his summer challenges in Iowa and New Hampshire. And he's trying to stoke the uh, culture wars here without question, uh, really without context as well. Uh, He points out in that video that uh, the campaign shared, they didn't create, but they own it, of course, if they share it. The comments that Donald Trump, then a candidate, made saying he will support um, Americans uh, who are in the LGBTQ community. Well, uh, as you said, that was in the wake of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Governor DeSantis's home state of Florida. 
So that is something that is left out of that. But that it is why it is getting widely condemned, not necessarily because of the anti-trans legislation, uh, separate conversation, of course, but uh, some of the reaction has been pretty quick. The Trump campaign jumped on this very uh, quickly, as they often do with Governor DeSantis going back and forth. Let's take a look at a comment over the weekend that a Trump campaign spokesman made. He said the DeSantis video shows, quote, a desperate campaign in its last throes of relevancy. That's from a Trump campaign spokesman. Uh, Perhaps even more uh, to the point and a broader conversation here is a reaction from the log cabin Republicans. Of course, that is a Republican group, a conservative group that is made up largely of gay Americans, gay and lesbian Americans. And this is what they said in a statement talking about just the political uh, stupidity of this. They said conservatives understand that we need to protect our kids, preserve women's sports, safeguard women's spaces and strengthen parental rights. But But Ron DeSantis' extreme rhetoric has just ventured into homophobic territory. They go on to say that it may be a short-term gain to try and win over some conservative voters, perhaps some evangelical voters. Even that's an open question. But a long-term challenge because they, of course, need moderates and independents uh, to win the White House. So that's why this is viewed as a, uh, you know, a short-term gain, perhaps long-term problem. But the bigger picture overall, they're trying to gain attention. And I guess now we've given it to them. Abby. Yeah, attention and, and perhaps they want the backlash. Who, who even knows? Jeff Zeleny, thank you very much. Let's sure. bring in our political panel here. So, Alencia, this DeSantis video, uh, one of the weird things about it is that it descri- he describes himself in the video by showing all these headlines as draconian. At one point, he's described as evil in another headline that's shown in the video What kind of campaign strategy is this? I don't think there is a campaign strategy here for this, except for to shock and awe. And maybe, you know, he's thinking, let me figure out a way to pull some attention from Donald Trump. But I don't think this is the smartest way to do that. I mean, it's extremely homophobic, it's extremely transphobic. And to the point that Jeff was making, it's very concerning for, you know, moderates and independents who, again, are your general um, election voters. It's also concerning that this video dropped literally right after the Supreme Court decision on Friday, where a lot of LGBTQ Americans on both sides of the aisles are concerned about their safety moving forward. And so in addition to this shock value and how absurd this literally is, it's not quite the strongest campaign move for him um, if he wants to separate himself. So this is this is an example of someone trying to do Donald Trump things without being Donald Trump. So Donald Trump gets a lot of support from his supporters because he says, look at my enemies. Judge me by my enemies. Look, they don't like me. They say these horrible things about me. That's just proof I'm on your side. This DeSantis video is trying to do that, right? Saying, look at all of these things people are saying about me. They're saying I'm evil. They're saying I'm draconian. But it's people you don't like saying this. And so that's why you should support me. The problem is there's only one Donald Trump, and it's Donald Trump. And a video like this is, in some ways, it's trying to reach a very bizarre audience. There's a lot of things in it that to the outside observer would look strange. Very inside jokes for the internet. You have to be like a Reddit super user to get some of them. So what's the Venn diagram of Reddit super users, conservative Republicans, and primary voters? I don't know how big that overlap is. Well, you, you know, there is another Venn diagram. There's the uh, Pete Buttigieg Venn diagram and the George Santos Venn diagram. And it, the center of it is in them both describing this video as basically, you know, 
homoerotic at the end of the day with all the oiled up men. He actually told you that, Dana. Um, I do want to ask you about this because uh, last night, this is uh, according to Politico, Steve Cortez, who's a top spokesperson for the Ron DeSantis super PAC, he said this, right now in national polling, we are way behind. I'll be the first to admit it. I believe in being blunt and honest. It's an uphill battle, but clearly Donald Trump is the runaway front runner. That was also a description, not just of the national polls, he said in this Twitter uh, Spaces event, they were double digits behind in the key battleground, early battleground states in the primary. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you that he's willing to be that blunt? It tells me that he's trying to get a message to the DeSantis campaign because mm. it's a super PAC and they're not technically supposed to speak. They're not legally supposed to yeah. speak. And so in my experience, I don't know about you all, in covering uh, the campaigns when the super PAC is very large and has a lot of money and has a lot of uh, power that they're supposed to wield, they send up flares publicly. And that looks like a giant flare yeah. coming from the DeSantis super PAC. That's so interesting. Um, you also spoke, Dana, yesterday, or today, actually, with Marjorie Dannenfelser, the president of the anti-abortion group uh, Susan B. Anthony List. Uh, I want to play here what she said about Trump and whether he's gone far enough on this issue of a 15-week abortion ban. I've met with him as I've met with all of the candidates, and I think while they're clearing their throats, there's a lot of throat clearing here, Democrats are gaining the advantage. And as, as long as, uh, as our candidates, including the top picks, are not defining themselves, Democrats are defining them. So the bright line remains. It's 15 weeks is the minimum standard. I mean, so they no, can do So no, he is not. Yet. Not, not yet. And also DeSantis, too, right, at, yes. on a national level. Yes, yes. And in that particular uh, part of our conversation, we were talking about Donald Trump because he, we remember last week, I believe it was, spoke to a conservative group here and for the first time said that the federal government has a vital role in, in dealing with abortion, which was a big push to get him to do that because he is in the camp inside the GOP that the more you talk about this— the more you lean into conservative positions on abortion, the more it will hurt you. And in his case, since he is a front runner, he hopes he'll be the nominee, will hurt him in a general election. And then you have uh, people like the uh, head of the Susan B. Anthony group and others, Mike Pence on the campaign trail, who say, no, no, no. The reason why Republicans did poorly in the midterms post-Dobbs is because we didn't lean into it enough and we were running away, had our head in the sand. I just find it so interesting because we know Trump is being pressured. There are allies in the Republican Party, not just in these groups, the anti-abortion groups, but there are other Republicans who want him to support the 15-week ban. And it's clear he's like, I'm not listening to anybody. I've got my eyes on the prize. I think we know that Donald Trump, more than anyone else, kind of knows how to play the game. And he's like, right so far, he's not willing to tie himself to a specific timeline for a federal abortion ban, no matter what other Republicans would like to see him say. I mean, when you're 30 points ahead and your nearest competitor is doing what Ron DeSantis is doing, I guess there's no incentive for Trump to tack further to the right at this moment. Well, remember, the big first state coming up will be Iowa. Iowa is a place where there are a lot of evangelical voters. The pro-life vote is very important in the GOP primary. With that said, we don't know what the debate situation is going to look like. We don't know to what extent people are going to be continuing to try to come at Donald Trump from the right versus trying not to come at Donald Trump at all. Right now, there are a lot of people in that field that don't want to talk about Donald Trump 
whatsoever. So it's still unclear to me how the politics of that issue will play out and whether that issue alone is enough to cost Trump his solid standing with, say, evangelical. Well, I will say, as someone who's clearly worked in abortion politics (laughs) for six years at Planned Parenthood, the further the Republicans continue to go and actually define themselves it actually is helpful for Democrats and independents. And we've seen that in the midterms. We saw that even before the midterms, but especially the midterms and after the Dobbs decision. And so Democrats do want Republicans to go further and to go on the record because it will help our base and it'll help independents as well. But that's the thing. Donald Trump has resisted going further to the right, despite what other conservatives want. But he's also not getting attacked for it by his uh, conservative foes, the other people running in the GOP primary. Maybe... Mike Pence, but as we know, Pence will attack and then he'll pull back. Mm. He's not really being consistently attacked by anyone besides maybe Chris Christie. And Chris Christie's not going to attack him on the issue of abortion. That's right. Right. Yeah. Uh, So need I remind everyone, uh, Donald Trump is also still awaiting and perhaps uh, facing a couple more indictments coming up. But CNN's K-File dug up some old comments from him back in 2016 when he reacted to the news that then FBI Director James Comey had reopened an investigation into his opponent, Hillary Clinton, watch what he said then. We could very well have a sitting president under felony indictment and ultimately a criminal trial. It would grind government to a halt. That is no longer a hypothetical scenario, right? I mean, uh, he could be the nominee, he could be reelected, and he could also be facing several indictments, including multiple federal indictments. That's right. And uh, Chris Christie, yesterday, I asked a question to him, not just as an opponent, but a former U.S. attorney, whether or not Donald Trump should be treated like anybody else if he is convicted, meaning go to jail. And his answer was yes. And that's going to be, if he is actually convicted, we're a long way from that. But if he is convicted, that's going to be another very big debate. And it comes back to what he was just saying in that clip about Hillary Clinton, which was, wasn't even close to that point. Yeah, I mean, the irony of it uh, for the folks who, like, like you, supported Hillary Clinton. I mean, I literally lost. was like, oh, my God, but her emails. <laughs> and here we are again. And to be honest, the Biden campaign should be playing that loop of Donald Trump saying it in his own words until the entire until he's out of the primary, hopefully. I think they may very well take you up on that suggestion. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us here. And to the Middle East, next for us. And Israel's largest military operation in two decades, what people in the West Bank tell CNN about the deadly violence that's ahead. In our world lead, we're following the largest Israeli military operation in the West Bank in some 20 years. As CNN's Hadass Gold reports, the main targets are militants inside a huge Palestinian refugee camp at Jenin. Hundreds of Israeli soldiers descending on Jenin. A massive raid supported by airstrikes and bulldozers. Tanks on the outskirts of the city. The largest incursion into the West Bank in two decades, since the days of the Second Intifada. We want a break of the camp being a safe haven for terrorists. Easier said than done. Israeli forces facing stiff resistance. The army bulldozing its way through. Airstrikes hitting what the military said was terrorist infrastructure. 
Soldiers firing from nearby homes in their hunt for weapons, explosive tunnels at what they say are militants. Palestinian authorities have condemned the raid, calling it a new war crime against our defenseless people. We renew our demand to the international community of the need to provide urgent international protection for our people and to impose sanctions on the occupying entity. In Janine, some residents say they were overwhelmed by the sheer force of the Israeli attack. We are unarmed people. We don't have anything in the camp to respond to this force. There is nothing safe in the camp. They dug all the streets with bulldozers. The Israeli government says it's not at war with Palestinians like Zayda. But with these men, who are blames for violence against Israelis. Our troops are battling the terrorists with unyielding resolve and fortitude while doing everything, everything, to avoid civilian casualties. The latest raid on Janine, building on over a year and a half of regular military operations. Following a recent wave of Palestinian attacks on Israelis. But the cycle of violence only intensifying. Militant group Hamas calling on its members to strike Israel by all available means. But for those caught in the crossfire, Israel warning the operation will last as long as necessary, even if it says it doesn't want to hold ground. We are focused on the infrastructure inside the camp. It it could be hours, it could be days. Now, Abby, the Palestinian Ministry of Health saying so far eight have been killed, more than 100 injured. The Israeli Defense Forces, though, saying that as far as they understand, they claim no non-combatants have been killed, but they do acknowledge that civilians are among the injured. Abby. Hadass Gold in Jerusalem, thank you so much for that. And let's bring in CNN's Alex Marquardt. Alex, you're covering a lot of this conflict in the next hour on The Situation Room. Yeah, we'll be digging into this uh, a lot more. It is an extremely concerning situation, Abby. It does feel more combustible than some of the more tit-for-tat violence that we have seen. These tactics not used by the Israeli military in the West Bank in two decades, uh, on the ground, uh, in the skies. Obviously, this has echoes of the Second Intifada in which thousands of Israelis and Palestinians were killed. So extremely concerning, extremely combustible. We'll be getting into this with two of the foremost experts, former U.S. officials, uh, Aaron David Miller and Martin Indyk. So we've got that and a lot more in the Situation Room at Top. Yeah, yeah an incredibly important moment and uh, a really a dangerous one uh, once again uh, in that part of the world. Alex Marquardt will look for you in the next hour on the Situation Room. And coming up next for us, the bovine intervention, how cows are breathing new life into America's heartland. In our Earth Matters series, scientists believe cows can be part of the solution for tackling the climate crisis. And it all revolves around a sustainable grazing method. CNN's Bill Weir takes a look at this experiment, which could improve the planet's soil, water and wildlife. In the beginning was the buffalo. Tens of millions of them wandering the land, munching wild grasses, and using poop and hooves to create rich, fertile soil up to 15 feet deep. Look at this. But since Americans replaced buffalo with cows, generations of fertilizers and pesticides, tilling and overgrazing, have turned much of that nutrient-rich soil into lifeless dirt. But not on farms where they graze cows just like wild buffalo. Well, so adaptive multi-paddock grazing, AMP grazing, is a way that mimics the way bison have moved across the Great Plains. And so it's really about the animals hit an area really hard, and then they leave it for a long time. Peter Bick is a professor at Arizona State University. 
And he believes that if enough beef and dairy operations copy this simple hack, cattle could actually become an ally in the fight against climate change. I anticipate we'll get a lot of pushback because people are not thinking that cows can be a part of the solution. Not only are you going against the grain of environmentalists who think yeah. meat is evil yeah. for, for lots of reasons. Yeah. You took money from McDonald's for this. Yeah, I asked for money from McDonald's for this. I, I wanted to go to big companies because if they don't change, we don't get there. For his docu-series, Root So Deep, You Can See the Devil Down There, Bick assembled a team of scientists. We're really interested in insects that live in poop. Experts in bugs birds, yes, Bob White, cows, soils, and carbon. They spent years comparing five sets of neighboring farms in the southeast. On one side, traditional grazers who let cows roam one big field for months at a time and often cut fertilized grass for hay. Woo! Come on! On the other side, amp grazers who never mow or fertilize. You open a gate, they go through, it takes five minutes, could roll, roll up a wire. And with a single line of electrical fence, move their cows from one patch of high grass to the next. Not building fence. This is how easy it is, Peter. While their science is yet to be published and peer-reviewed, Bick says early data has found amp farms pulling down up to four times the carbon, while holding 25% more microbes, three times the bird life, and twice as much rain per hour. If it's a thousand acre farm, it's 54 million gallons of water. That's now washing your soil away versus soaking into your land. Wow, look at this grass. But this is also a human experiment to see whether data and respectful discussion can change hearts and minds. This was grazed about 40 days ago. And this hadn't been fertilized in 12 years. Awesome. And when we got out of spending money on fertilizer, it was huge, mm -hmm. huge. And I didn't think it would ever happen. It is such a stress release. We just don't worry about a lot of it anymore. Mm -hmm. And you don't even fertilize when you plant your rye grain. Nothing. It sounds crazy, but, but just letting Mother Nature Take do it. the yeah. work. Would it be an interesting thing if you didn't have to pay for fertilizer? Would that be wonderful? Curtis Spangler is one of the conventional farmers in Roots So Deep, and he says his mind was changed when he realized he now has a way to double his herd and quit his second off-farm job. And right now, we're having to dump thousands of dollars into nitrogen every year that really, if we just change a couple things, we might be able to save that money to put it toward other uh, resources. Is that something you're committed to doing now as oh, a result yeah. of this project? We're, yeah. we're really looking and seeing the benefits of it and how we can work it. So as we hit the height of grilling season, a little food for thought. There is ways to produce meat that is not good for the planet. And there's ways to produce meat that's really good for the planet. And that's the nuance that's been missing. Bill Weir, CNN, Jasper, Tennessee. Something for you to chew over as you enjoy your 4th of July barbecues. Bill Weir, thank you for that reporting. And up next for us, the understandable freak out in North Carolina over a crack in a roller coaster's support beam. And what is being done about it now? So check this one out in our national lead. Something you don't ever want to see at an amusement park. And that is a crack in the roller coaster's support beam. And it's supporting the tallest roller coaster in the country. 
It's the Fury 325 at Carowinds, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Its peak reaches 325 feet, hence the name, and it hits speeds of up to 95 miles per hour. But today, crews from North Carolina's Labor Department inspected the ride, and a man visiting the park spotted the crack on Friday. This ride has been shut down ever since, and I will never be going on it. But our coverage continues right now with Wolf Blitzer over in the Situation Room, actually with Alex Marquardt, who's in the Situation Room for Wolf. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.